friends, are you ready for the party? I said, are you ready for the party? Also in the news, an entire Jungle Cruise tour group has disappeared in the riverfront region. Authorities are trying to determine their exact whereabouts. It is the fourth reported incident involving the Jungle Cruise this month. You see my friends, the computer makes life easier, saves me time and headaches too. Today, the resident stars of Disney MGM Studios celebrate 100 years of magic. Time travel commencing in T minus 10 seconds and counting. W. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 633, and together we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, and more as we go from the parks to the screens and everything in between here on the podcast, my weekly live video on Facebook every Wednesday night, community, books, audio tours, blog, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and find everything else at www.radio.com. So we're going to continue our journey through the unrealized attractions, shows, resorts, and concepts dreamed up for Walt Disney World during the Disney decade. This week, we'll look at Epcot attractions and pavilions and incredibly well-themed lands and attractions in the Disney MGM Studios. We'll also look at a themed dining experience, a show you might be surprised was ever going to be a thing, a new train, and the movie and resort based on a Walt Disney World experience you might have never heard of before. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show for information, updates, and your voicemails. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week as we travel from Magic Kingdom over to Epcot Center, specifically making our way to one of the new pavilions that was planned for World Showcase. Enjoy. Tried. Um, yeah, because we can move over to World Showcase, where one of the big thrill rides, which I, I know you've covered this before in with the Switzerland Pavilion, was their version of the Matterhorn Mountain. And... You know, there it would have it would have been a whole pavilion for Switzerland with, you know, 230 seat restaurant, four stores that kind of gives you, you know, the feel of what, you know, possibly the German pavilion is like today. You know, there would have been a, you know, a clock, a clock and music box shop, a wood carving store, a candy shop and a, a clothing sh- a shop. And um, and then but there would have been a great depth to this pavilion because it would have led back to the Matterhorn mountain attraction, um, which would have taken on kind of a Swiss Olympic bobsled training camp type of theme. And, um, and one of the things I just find really interesting from all of this, I I find the queue, the concepts ideas for the queue of, you know, moving through woodlands and, you know, and icy streams and mountain hut, but I just think it's interesting that they went so far as to say that there would have been super cool drinking fountains. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, and the 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 hot, the whole idea, and look, I think all of us would love to see additional pavilions be built in Epcot, and from both location and representation and and design of of having a Swiss pavilion and what that mountain would look like in terms of the landscape and and horizon of of world showcase would be wonderful and and i think you're right the idea of having a not just another pavilion to walk through and learn about the culture and the food but to have this um you know racing bobsled you know icy adventure adventure as the centerpiece of the showcase is i think something that even now guests still would find to be an attractor and satisfier in that park. And this is another one that, you know, was very, very close to being realized. This was not one of those that was just rumored or discussed, but there is evidence out there of, you know, uh, of guides and very detailed maps of what the Switzerland Pavilion was supposed to be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they had the whole master plan set up for the for the attraction and yeah, lots of concept art of, you know, as to what this would have looked like. And again, we you you know, you wonder why the pavilions don't get built. Oftentimes it's it's a combination of money, sometimes politics plays into it as well, but this of all the pavilions other than, you know, the the Africa pavilion and the, the Spain pavilion and such and Israel that we've talked about in, in the past, this is one that seemed to be most closely realized in terms of the preparation for execution. A circle of nations that celebrates both cultural differences and shared human values. Yet the circle is not complete and the roll call of nations and cultures from around the world has only begun. In the northwest corner of World Showcase lies five acres awaiting the arrival of the newest pavilion for the global village, Russia. Condensing this giant land into a single pavilion is the task of the Walt Disney Imagineers, the creative team of artists, architects, and engineers responsible for the design and construction of the Disney theme parks. Working from intensive research and consultation with Russian artists and advisors, the Imagineers are crafting a pavilion that will give the Epcot audience a brief journey into the heart of the Russian experience. From the ancient past to the ever-changing present. Set amidst groves of shining birch trees, the famous domes and spires of St. Basil's Cathedral will rise above the red brick walls of Moscow's Kremlin. Beyond the walls lies a rustic hamlet of log buildings, carved and decorated in traditional Russian style. Statues and famous monuments set in a wide plaza evoke the genius of Russian art and poetry. The main attraction of the pavilion will be an 800-seat theater presenting a show entitled Russia, The Bells of Change. To create this attraction, Disney is combining forces with Europe's premier theater designers to produce an innovative state-of-the-art theater big enough to tell Russia's epic story. Peasants and czars, poets and revolutionaries, common men and extraordinary heroes fill the tale of Russia's never-ending quest for herself. From the days of old Kiev, 
to the revolutionary barricades in modern Moscow, the continuing evolution of a great people becomes the focus of this dynamic show. The giant theater itself comes to life with epic scenes from Russian history, the coronation of a medieval czar, the revolution of 1917, and the launch of a Soviet spacecraft are all part of an extraordinary journey filled with a cast of epic figures from across the centuries. In a setting unlike any other at Walt Disney World, spectacular set pieces, a live narrator, film montage, a cast of audio animatronic figures, and a sweeping musical score will bring to life the songs, the triumphs, and the passion of the people of Russia. In addition to the main show, the pavilion will also feature a ride based on a classic Russian folktale, Ivan and the Magic Pike, where guests will board a magic troika to the enchanted, colorful world of Slavic fairy tales. There, they will follow the adventures of Lazy Ivan, a good-hearted peasant lad whose lucky encounter with a magical fish sends him on a quest across the landscape of medieval Russia. Strolling through the rest of the pavilion, guests may stop to dine on traditional food, shop for crafts, or visit a gallery displaying Russian art and cultural artifacts. In the center of the pavilion, an open square resounds to the rhythmic beat of traditional Russian dance and the immortal melodies that Russian composers have given the world. Music, history, drama, the treasures of Russian genius and the warmth of her people. A nation's story that enfolds the world in its timeliness. All here in Walt Disney World's newest World Showcase Pavilion. Yeah, I mean, de definitely, too, as far as you'd have to think politically wise, Switzerland would have been a lot easier to handle than perhaps, you know, the, one of the other pavilions that was supposed to be a part of the Disney decade, which was the Soviet Union at that point in time. And you can even read from the Orlando Sentinel that they, that Disney, you know, specifically mentions that, 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 you know, that was the most requested pavilion at that point in time, but that politically it was, a, it was a, going to be a struggle if they were going to pursue it. Yeah, and I mean it's the Swiss. Everybody loves the Swiss, um, but the and again, but Soviet Union too was one that was expected to be built by the end of the decade. Um, this was one that, uh, according to Disney, appeared that they had overcome any of those political financial um, hurdles, but was never realized. And I think would have been potentially one of the most beautiful visually of all the pavilions and might have been a, a great way for us to learn about, especially at that time, a, a, a country and a people that, you know, we did not know a lot about. Yeah, I mean, as far as beautiful, absolutely. I mean, St. Basil's Cathedral, to me, is one of the most beautiful structures in the world. Um yeah, and it, it was to have its own attraction there with it, Russia, the Bells of Change. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that's, I mean, isn't that the purpose of World Showcase to open up, you know, 
our, our eyes to other places. And, you know, I, I can understand the, you know, the problematic nature and trying to navigate that at the time. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that was probably where they were trying to head with that was, you know, maybe we can foster some goodwill here with this. Yeah. And, and this is another one too, that there are, um, there's videos and there's photos of Imagineers working over a model of what that that beautiful um, courtyard was supposed to look like, including a couple of guys you might recognize, like a Marty Sklar and Joe Rody. Yeah, and then um, you know, obviously, there's lots of photos from the Soviet Union pavilion, but then there, we also have another attraction not a whole pavilion, but another attraction that had a lot of concept art and a lot of focus at the time, uh, which was the Mount Fuji attraction in Japan. Which I know we've touched on a number of times in in past episodes, I think would have been a, a welcome addition as somebody who loves that pavilion and loves that Japan. We know that part of the reason why a, a Mount Fuji attraction couldn't happen had nothing to do with the mountain itself, it happened, it, it had to deal with a corporate sponsor as Kodak was really the preeminent sponsor in Walt Disney World at the time. And if you remember, you know, 70s, 80s and 90s, every the only film you basically used was Kodak film. They were the official sponsor and Kodak did honestly not want an attraction built that utilized their number one competitor's name, which was Fuji Film. Yeah, and I think it would have just been really interesting to see these two mountains on the landscape of World Showcase, um, to to see that you know that height difference and looking across the lagoon and and I also just wonder too you know had you had both of these there like you mentioned that you know even today twenty twenty one these probably would still be very popular attractions for Epcot and it does lead one to wonder had they pursued something like this. Would there, you know, not to get into the the IP argument, but would there have been less of a, a feel that that was needed today if you still, if you would have had a couple of these attractions that were big draws to the back of the park, big people eaters, big, you know, big guest satisfiers? You know, it's the discussion, it's the ongoing discussion and debate, right? What's... What is a greater guest satisfier or attractor, especially for younger guests or parents of kids, is do you tell kids, hey, kids, we're going to ride Frozen attraction or a Maelstrom attraction? Are we going to see um, characters from Coco or are we going to go on a ride based on classic Russian folktales on, you know, with Ivan and the Magical Pike? They're a little bit they're a little bit harder sells for um, you know for kids you know some than others and it's a shame because if you look at some of the concept for example of the Russian pavilion and the music and the culture and the history and the the drama and obviously the culinary adventures we would go on as well uh, I think it would have been a fascinating look into a place that I think many of us might not come, might not ever get to go to, but from a 
a pure dollars and cents and and I keep using the word guest satisfier, but that's really what it is. What are going to be the things that attract more people to Epcot, which was part of Epcot's problem is that it was not, it was, I don't want to say disappointing, but for kids that were used to only Magic Kingdom and then going to Epcot where there was a lot of things for adults to do and places to learn, it was not necessarily the place that six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-olds were clamoring to go to. Yeah, I mean, I can honestly say, you know, I I grew up in that transition period of of the, you know, the original Epcot moving toward the Epcot of today. And um, for our family at the age that my sister and I were, we were, you know, half to one day Epcot people because there there was very little that was an attractor for two little girls. And, and it's a very, also just a very big park. So if you're going to get two little girls legs walking, you know, the entirety of Epcot, there needs to be a definitely, definitely something to entice them toward the backside of the park, you know? So I, I, I by no means trash on original Epcot. There are things that I love there that I experienced as a, you know, as a kid as well, but I, I can understand the move toward you know, where they were going with some of these attractions in the 90s and where we've ultimately gone today. Yeah, and look, obviously the, the you know, the, the decline and the, you know, the, the, the fall of the, the Soviet Union and, and all the economic blows that, that happened um, is a big part of the reason why that the pavilion never occurred. And, and I know that there was discussion or, or at least rumors back in the early 2000s um, as... The Soviet, as the Russian economy was um, was bouncing back, and um, there was potential money to be invested by um, by by either the government or by Russian companies, that uh, conversations were supposedly happen again because Disney still had and maybe still has this ongoing interest in a Russian pavilion in World Showcase. So. Uh, again, going back to what we said at the beginning about no good idea ever dying. I know we've sort of informally polled on the shows and on Wednesday Night Live and and in in the clubhouse in terms of pavilions we would like to see come to World Showcase. Uh, a Russia pavilion is always one that continually comes up, along with places like Greece and Egypt. Um, and I think there's there's would be great opportunity there just from a a, a cultural education perspective. And I want to know what Russian people eat. Like, I just, I want to do the, I want to help in the research there. Um, What else? Anything else in terms of Epcot, whether it be Future World or World Showcase, that was part of the Disney Decade plans? I think we hit it all. I think so, too. Out of all the things, and we'll sort of, we'll revisit this on a grand scale, but as a child of, of, you know, going to Epcot, which of the things that were planned do you think you would, for Epcot specifically, would you like to have seen most? I find the journey into space fascinating, but guaranteed that would have been a, I lose my lunch on that. So um, I think I would probably have to go with the the Switzerland pavilion um, just because it, it was a full pavilion. And at that point in time, you know, in the nineties, I, I loved Splash Mountain, Big Thunder Mountain, you know, the, the roller coasters. So I would have, I would have liked to have my chance to ride the Matterhorn since to this day, I, st- I still have not been to Disneyland. So. 
we need to fix. We need to get you out there on a research trip. So. <laughs> All right, let's move over to at the time the uh, the only the third and final park, which was the Disney MGM Studios, and lots of development there, very much based on IP that was owned by Disney in whole or in part. So again, I will ask you to uh, take us into the studios and which of the many concepts that seem to be uh, fake complies that did not happen, were you most interested or intrigued by? Well, most of these that we're going to talk about here are things that I know you have covered on other shows in full, but I have to go with the, with the Muppets. I have to go with the, the Muppet expansion that, you know, I've always loved Muppet Vision 3D and the idea of having the entire Muppet Studios, you know, the great Muppet movie ride. And what I find most interesting about that is um, if you go back to a 1990 issue for anyone who remembers the old uh, Disney magazine there is a 1990 issue that Jim Henson was on the cover of. And the issue actually came out, I believe, after he passed away. Um, but the interview was done prior to that. And in there, he talked about um, his enthusiasm about that attraction in particular because of the potential for his characters to be rendered as animatronics. He felt like... Um, well, th just a quote from it, him, it says, this is a form of technology I've never been into before. And it's as if these characters were designed to be audio animatronics. Uh, when we try to do a live person or cartoon character as an audio animatronic figure, we're changing medium and we're trying to turn a person or a cartoon character into something plastic or fabric. But when we take Muppets into audio animatronics, we're staying in the same medium. These characters were created in these three-dimensional forms, so we should be able to use them in park attractions in a way that will look very authentic. And you have to agree with him that I, I think had that you know, attraction been realized, I really think we would have felt like we were meeting the Muppets. I mean, in a, in a way that you, you don't even feel, you know, with, with something like, you know, Peter Pan or, or Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, you know, those are great renderings, great recreations of those characters, but you would have been seeing Muppets in the same format that you saw them on the Muppet show. And, I, I just, you know, the humor of it, the expansiveness of what that attraction sounded like it would have been with, you know, the Muppets attempting to make these great films in their own parody satire versions. I think it just would have been, a, you know, really, honestly, a perfect attraction. Disney has such, a, especially Walt Disney World, has such an interesting relationship with Muppets going back to. Here Come the Muppets, uh, Muppets on Location, Days of Swine and Roses, the Muppet Mobile Labs, and and what the potential for the, the Living Character Initiative was when we saw um, uh, uh, Dr. Bunsen, Honeydew, and Beaker. Um, it, we saw him in, in Future World, but uh, Muppet Vision 3D, Pizza Rizzo, uh, Muppets present great a moment in American history, and then all of the Muppets that we didn't get a chance to see. And, and we do do a couple of very deep dives into looking back and forward with the Muppets on show 251. Um, 
and what was and what might have been, as well as on show 169, we did the Muppets that never were in Walt Disney World, where we really take a look at some of the many different concepts that were never executed on. And even now in 2021, as the Muppets had seemed to be making a bit of a resurgence on film with the Muppets movie, and then there was the... the um, the sequel, which did not do as well, various iterations of Muppet shows that have come on to ABC, on to Disney Plus, uh, you know, little shorts online. I'm still to this day curious and fascinated as to why there has not either been an update to the Muppet Vision 3D attraction or more importantly, a new Muppet attraction in Walt Disney World. I think it is one of those properties that is so incredibly rich, not just in in history and humor, but an opportunity that for one reason or another has not been leveraged again in the parks. And maybe it's trying to figure out what would work best. Um, how do you sort of, you know, possibly integrate it into something different? I still believe that at some point, at some place, probably at Disney's Hollywood Studios, we will see some other iteration of a Muppet show, a Muppet attraction, some sort of high-technology interactive type of experience because there's just too much great meat on that bone not to leverage it further in the parks. Definitely. I mean, there's definitely an audience for the Muppets. I mean, I have I have my blue sky version of what I'd like to see the Muppets do. Um, well, wait, now you have to share it. You can't you can't tease us. And not. <laughs> I I get where Dino Land is going in Animal Kingdom. I totally, you know, you do the backstory history on it. I completely understand it. Um, I think it's, you know, a very in-depth story, but. I honestly would love to see the Muppets take over Dino Land. I would love to see Bunsen, Honeydew, and Beaker take us through Dinosaur. I would love to see the Mayhem Band take over, you know, running the roadside stand and the restaurant. I, you know, see Rolf running the Boneyard. I think that that could be a hysterical use of the Muppets to overlay them in an area that is not always a huge attractor, you know, in, in 2021 compared to what it was at one point in time. That is the most interesting and fascinating uh, take <laughs> I have heard on the, um, on the Muppets in the parks. I don't think a lot of people consider Animal Kingdom as the destination for it, but you're right, sort of having that Muppet overlay on something in some place that's they're so out of place there. It it almost is the thing that that adds well, to the humorous element. And it clearly worked in Liberty Square for them That's to be somewhere true. that we initially were like, "What? <laughs> you are going to put Muppets in the windows in Liberty Square?" <laughs> but it worked. You know, That's I true. I mean, I just think that you know, I, to me, this is one of the saddest losses of the Disney decade, and and it's it's sad going forward to today and and i it muppet vision 3d is a tough thing you know the one thing that we got from the disney decade because 
a lot of people, you know, if you're a first time guest in, in 2021, you may go in there and think, wow, this is really dated. Um, but if we were to lose Muppet Vision 3D, you know, you're mm-hmm. losing the last piece of work of a, a cultural American icon, really. I mean, it was the last thing that Jim Henson did. So, yeah, I think this would be I'll I'll bring this topic up on a Wednesday night live show um, on, our, on our Facebook live on Wednesday nights, because I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, you listener, your thought on the current state of the Muppets in Walt Disney World, what you might potentially like to see in terms of Muppets expanding in Walt Disney World, maybe where that should be. And just so you know, I'll put links in the show notes at www.radio.com to all of the other past shows and, and articles that we're referencing for easy reference. But I will see your Muppets and I will raise you one Roger Rabbit because the potential for what Roger Rabbit was going to be and, and his presence, he and some of his cohorts in Walt Disney World. We Again, we did a very deep dive on show 327 but for purposes of our discussion today, um, you know, starting on Hollywood Boulevard, there was going to be down Sunset Boulevard, this Tinseltown street that was going to include a group of attractions and restaurants and shops centered around the Toontown Depot and the Terminal Bar and Grill, which was supposed to open in the mid-90s. And this Roger Rabbit Hollywood land would have included the flagship attraction, which would have been a Baby Herman runaway buggy ride where you would have boarded this oversized buggy and gone through the Toontown Hospital and crashed outside and would have been inspired by the Tummy Trouble short. There was going to be a Benny the Cab ride, which you would have gotten behind the wheel of the taxi from Toontown. And there would have been a Toontown trolley, which would have used a flight simulator type technology which would have surrounded you by animated screens to take you on this trolley ride through the, um, you know, through this cartoon world, obviously being driven by Roger Rabbit. Um, there's a lot of different reasons why these never came to be due in part with conflicts with the shared ownership with um, uh, Steven Spielberg and, and Amblin Entertainment. And we talk about some of the, last remaining vestiges of of Roger remaining in the park and how he really was at the time being positioned as the next Mickey Mouse. And I talk about this all the time. There are famous pictures of Michael Eisner standing in between Mickey Mouse on one side, Roger on the left, and almost him sort of grasping their hands, connecting the three of those together because of what they felt the potential for this character and what was supposed to be this ongoing franchise was going to be in the parks. And now we have the silhouette cut out over the window. So, and and like a billboard, like we don't have very much left for what potentially could have been a huge presence in the parks. Yeah, definitely. I, you think, you know, to use that phrase again, the guest satisfier, you'd have to think that these three attractions would have very definitely been guest satisfiers in Hollywood studios because you listen to what, um, what types of attractions they were. And really all three of them were very, would have been very accessible for all ages. Um, and then obviously, you know, involved a character that an IP that was very popular at the time. 
you know, you have to think that, that, you know, while there were a lot of reasons why this didn't happen, I, I don't think the, you know, concept idea was one of them. I think, you know, they were, they were good concepts that would have definitely met a need in that park and, and been attractors to what at that point in time was a half day park. Yeah, I mean, still to this day, you know, there are, oh, I talk about the, the the silhouette and there's Roger's footprints in front of the theater. I believe the Baby Herman buggy vehicle has since been removed from Backlot Express. I, I need to, to go and verify that. There were a little bit, I'm actually surprised that uh, by Echo Lake, that huge Maroon Studios billboard with Baby Herman, uh, Baby Herman, Roger, and Jessica still remains, not with any sort of inclination that there is going to be any additional Roger Rabbit coming into the park. Yeah, and then from what I understand, I, I believe both of these ideas were happening concurrently, not that one was, you know, a replacement for the other that you would have had there on Sunset Boulevard. You would have had the Roger Rabbit Hollywood, but then you also would have had Mickey's Movie Land, which would have been there is not nearly as much information on this as there is on the, the Roger Rabbit attractions. But this is another thing where there's a piece of concept art featured in that Dateline Walt Disney World that I referenced earlier. Um and really, I believe that this concept art looks very similar to what was considered for the Burbank Park as well that we talked about on the previous show, that this would have been a large replica of the original Hyperion studio where guests could have gone in and they could have kind of had like a, a whimsical, you know, fantasy version of making movies to me, it almost sounds like when you think back to going through, you know, Mickey's house and he has his whimsical version of his kitchen, like, you know, you would have had this, you know, kid friendly version of what Hollywood studios was supposed to be. Yeah. And this is one of those concepts that as we try and think about it, not just in terms of it being built in the nineties, but today. And as we record in 2021, you know, where technology and movie making changes and evolves so very quickly, this idea of, you know, being a movie maker in 1990 is very different than what it is in 2021 because we're all movie makers, right? We all have a movie studio now in our pockets with our iPhones or our iPads and, and what we have on our desktop. So would it have been this sort of, retro feel in terms of this is what it was like in Hyperion Studios and or was it a combination of this is what movie making is like now to try and inspire a new group of potential filmmakers that want to take that passion and turn it into something that they do. Um, it, it's always, diff you know, that's the, the problem sometimes with, with some of the like Tomorrowland, you know, you anytime you try and showcase something that is new and current in a society where technology is no longer doubling every seven years, I think it's probably half that now, keeping things fresh and interesting and relevant um, and, and cutting edge sometimes is very challenging in a park that, you know, having to take down an attraction for potentially months at a time 
could be, you know, very difficult. He, no guest wants to walk in and see an attraction closed when they've been waiting for and saving for uh, a trip to Walt Disney World. So, um yeah, and without a lot of details on this, it's hard to know exactly who this would have been targeted at. But if it was targeted toward younger children, um, you have to think that the Honey, I Shrunk the Audience movie set that you got on the opposite side of the park was probably maybe a better long-term use, which, you know, maybe why they went that route. Because, you know, like you say, something that's based on, you know, actually movie making and versus, you know, a playground for kids to go get their energy out, you know, may have been something that was more needed at the park at that time. And look, not everything that Disney touches turns to gold. They don't necessarily have the Midas touch in every aspect. You're smiling because I think you know where I'm going. And while on paper, the idea of an A-list star-studded cast for a character that was in existence for a very long time. There's no way that a movie based on Dick Tracy can fail. So we might as well start planning for the e-ticket attraction based on this for the Disney Studios called Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers, um, which would have been an, you know, high thrill high excitement type of attraction based on the film, which like I said, um, had no way to fit. Have, Kendall, have you ever even seen Dick Tracy? Calling Dick Tracy. Have you ever seen Dick Tracy? I have not. I, I remember my parents watched Dick Tracy, I, I believe. Um, but yeah, I, I remember when Dick Tracy came out. I remember when the Rocketeer came out. I have since made effort to watch the Rocketeer multiple times. I feel like that's an underrated film. Um, but I have not gotten my hands on Dick Tracy. I would like to watch it just to see what the disappointment was. <laughs> so you know what I think I, we're going to do? So every week on the the live show, I do a Disney Plus pick of the week. I'm not sure Dick Tracy's on there, but I think we might have to make maybe like we'll do like a WWE Nation group watch and we'll all watch Dick Tracy at the same time. And, and look, let's, you know, we're, we're kidding around, but Dick Tracy was, for all intents and purposes, a, a huge miss for Disney. Um, it was originally budgeted at like $25 million. It came in at $100 million, but they were so invested, invested in this attraction that they felt could not lose. They expected Dick Tracy to be the next Batman franchise. Uh, and Batman had grossed over, you know, 400 and some odd million at the box office, but it was troubled from really the beginning, not just in terms of the the poor turnout at theaters, but there were um, there were legal battles in terms of who owned the TV and film rights, and there were issues with Warren Beatty and and his purchases in, into in investing in uh, Tribune Media, which owned some of the rights, and who actually had ownership of. The characters. Um, so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of of issues with this, but Disney really had this belief that it could sustain an e-ticket attraction, much the same way as now. You know, we think of Frozen being the attraction. Like we are gonna, we have to go to Disney World so we can go ride the Dick Tracy Crime Stopper ride. Well, and you know, I, you 
it seems like from what they were hoping that this, you know, like you say, like that it would have been the next Batman, that it would have been along the lines of what Iron Man is today. So, you know, obviously you would have wanted to have an attraction ready to go for the, from the jump, you know, not, okay, yeah, it was a success. And now four years down the road, you know, we have an attraction. Although I, mean, I think it really would have almost been like its own mini land. I mean, you would have sort of walked mm-hmm. into this very well themed, you know, 1920s Chicago land. Which let's just stop and talk about the real travesty of that, that we don't get a hot Italian beef sandwich shop <laughs> See, or Chicago dogs it's or friends, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. You need your dip the hot Italian hot Italian beef in the hot Florida sun. But and if you think about it, like the aesthetic would have fit in perfectly. Think about what the old streets of New York would have been, or you know, a side street off of Hollywood Boulevard. Stepping back in time into sort of nineteen twenty Chicago would have been the uh, on again on paper a perfect fit for the studios. And eventually, look, the plan was was obviously eventually to bring it over to. Disneyland in a new land there called Hollywood land. Well, and you have to think too, you know, having a, a film franchise like this in MGM studios would have been a big draw had the film been a hit, but also just the ride system that they were planning on using at that point in time, you have to look at what attractions existed in MGM studios. Like there's no tower of terror. There's no rock and roller coaster. There's no, um, you know, you just got Star Wars and you would have had this ride system that would have used those enhanced motion vehicles like what they have in Indiana Jones, you know, and, and Dinosaur today. And, you know, while we can talk about the somewhat problematic nature of gangsters on the running boards with their Tommy guns, <laughs> you know, I mean, MGM Studios could have used an attraction like this at that point in time. Yeah. And, and. Again, using that so uh, to imagine what this attraction was going to be like, it was going to use those those EMVs, those enhanced motion vehicles that you have on Dinosaur, that you have on um, um, Indiana Jones a- Adventure, and it wasn't clear you were not you were going to have these um, this sort of police chase going through with you know shooting back and forth. Uh, I had read somewhere that you were going to be able to sort of have your own. Tommy gun, there'd be almost like a, a Buzz Lightyear type, you know, gun on there. So you would be shooting as well, which again might not necessarily in, you know, in today's world be an attraction that would be everybody's cup of tea for a variety of understandable reasons. So um, maybe things happen for a reason, but I always wonder how successful. I wonder what the attraction itself would have looked like because it does sound intriguing just from a, you know, even sort of taking the IP of Dick Tracy out of it, sort of being in this 1920s Chicago police, you know, crime, um, criminal pursuit thing. But uh, how successful the attraction might have been uh, and what sort of technology they were going to use even above and beyond the EMVs. Yeah, I just think of uh, the public enemy scene and great right. movie ride on a grander scale. Yeah, um, definitely. And I don't know. Look, I don't know that 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 attraction with or without Dick Tracy would have had the necessary longevity that um, it would need to. Yeah, and. Um, Another thing that probably would not have the same, well, maybe, I was to say, maybe not necessarily the same longevity 
today, but you know, Disney Channel seems to still be fairly popular, but they uh, had plans for a Disney Channel auditions show. So guests would have had the opportunity to screen test kind of along the lines of the old American Idol show um, that you, you would have had the chance to, to uh, just perform a little short screen test with someone there who would be able to then pass along that day's winner to Disney Channel. And there would have been chances for you to have little, um, you know, possibly extra parts or for your screen test to actually air on the Disney Channel. And uh, the pre-show would have featured some of the current shows, you know, that synergy again of the new Mickey Mouse Club. And then they also mentioned Pooh Corner, which is currently a perennial favorite of people to mention that that they would like to see that on Disney plus. I, I can only hope that it would have also included adventures in wonderland, which I was glad to see dropped on Disney plus this past week. So Disney channel auditions is, is fascinating. Look, it sounds a whole lot to me like American idol when it came to the park in terms of having these, not just audience participation, but the, the, the potential for the audience to perform not just on the stage at Disney MGM Studios, but to be able to take that performance and that real audition beyond just the day of show in the parks into something that would have gone on to, in that case, the Disney Channel in terms of American Idol being able to be featured on the TV show. Um, so there's, there's a, a, a real friendly competitive aspect to it as well as the idea like yeah and it goes back to the original idea of, of Disney MGM Studios like anybody can be a star right and we're going to put our money where our mouth is by literally giving you a chance to audition you don't need an agent you don't need to live in Hollywood you don't need to do all those things we're going to give you a shot anybody's got a shot any day of the week to potentially be whether it be an extra on the Disney Channel or who knows might have you know, gotten their big break and been discovered. And I think probably that was probably an underlying motivation like, hey, how cool of a story is it going to be when we find our next Disney Channel star who happened to be vacationing with her or his mom and dad in the parks, took a shot, auditioned, and now is part of the Mickey Mouse Club or Pooh Corner or whatever show it might be. When you have to think from a park ops perspective, especially at that point in time, that that would have been a people eater of an attraction. You know, if you give people that incentive that, well, you might have the chance to have this 10 second spot or whatever it may be that, you know, Hollywood, not well, not Hollywood studios at the time, Disney MGM studios was lacking in attractions needed more, you know, more space to draw people into. You would think that would have definitely packed out a studio each time that it, that it ran. Yeah. And you know, this might be a good transition point to other things that were going to come to the studios and elsewhere around Walt Disney world. And let's just call this part. Things are about to get really weird. So, because one of the other potential developments um, that was talked about in those reports, starting with, 
Disney's MGM Studios and then would potentially morph to be located elsewhere on property. And I kid you not, when I use the word Noah's Ark, and Noah's Ark was not like that really, I think there was like a really bad TV show like in the 70s that lasted like two days. This was like, this is the one nobody ever believes, Kendall. Like there really was going to be a huge capital investment in bringing Noah's Ark to the theme parks, starting out with a concept for the Disney MGM Studios. And this is not the first time that Disney had dipped their toes into Noah's parting of the Red Sea's waters. There was a uh, a 20-minute Disney short that was actually released in theaters back in 1959 along with Third Man on the Mountain, where they told the story of Noah and the Ark. And it was the first time Disney had actually used stop-motion animation in a film. And Paul Fries, as you know for his many, many voices, was the voice of Noah and God, not bad, and uncredited Thurl Ravenscroft, often also voiced three other voices, Shem, Ham, and Japheth in this Noah's Ark. And according to the release put out by Disney in um, in the 80s, 19, I'm going to quote, 1992, because you're not going to believe it, 1992 brings a show marking the Disney debut of the most celebrated creative talent in the history of the stage, Mr. Andrew Lloyd Webber from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar, Vita. Cats, Starlight Express, and that little ditty known as Phantom of the Opera, who will compose an original symphonic score and executive produce Noah's Ark, the most ambitious nighttime spectacular in Disney theme park history. That is setting the literal and figurative stage and an, an incredibly high bar for what was going to be, um, you know, talk about bringing in A-list talent, but obviously a very fascinating subject to to base this new show on. Yeah, it sounds like Noah's Ark was harmonious before harmonious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that, that is, that's a, that's a high bar to set there. And they may have felt that they needed to set it that high because you have Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber scoring the show. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of information on what this would have looked like other than it mentioned, you know, I found some things that have mentioned neon tubing, whatever, whatever way that would have been used. I, I can, I, you know, hearing that, I think something like electrical water pageant, mm-hmm. but you know, it seems like it would have had to have been a lot more elevated than that. So you think today, you know, rivers of light and, and some of the other things that have been done out on the water, some of the aspects of phantasmic and um, it, it's curious to me as to how they landed on Noah's Ark. You know, why was, why was that the choice of theme? Uh, you know, were they trying to bring, you know, because like you said, initially, there's times where this is mentioned as a show that would have been coming to to MGM Studios. 
And then other times where it's mentioned as a show that would have been part of Crescent Lake. So it does make you wonder, were they trying to bring in, you know, sort of a, a Broadway type, you know, aspect feel there to MZ, MGM Studios? Um, and clearly over at Crescent Lake, it seems like they would have been trying to draw people to the boardwalk in the evening. Yeah, so this is sort of how I envisioned it, sort of by piecing together anything that I could find in terms of, of reading it. And Crescent Lake, you know, sort of extends from that area in front of the Boardwalk Beach Club, Yacht Club Resorts, past the Swan and Dolphin, and really out, you know, you remember, you can access MGM Studios via boat or by the, the Judson Green walkway there. And it sort of gave me the sense that, like you said, this was sort of their version of electrical water pageant, something that, as maybe the parks closed, would be a reason to stay there, to not just stay at the studios, but to stay at one of those resorts because you were going to have access, sort of front row seats to this floating stage show that, like you said, was going to have neon and and lights and whatever else they had planned for it um again it made sense to at look at the time especially andrew lloyd weber was a very very hot property we went through some of the the many very very popular shows that he had produced and developed and i guess the the idea was or maybe and i'm trying to find out why it never really happened um was it unworkable from a financial sense were there issues in terms of andrew lloyd weber was it location was it timing because from what i read michael eisner was very much on board with not just the idea but the location as well and it was maybe something that would drive additional traffic additional revenue to that section of the resort in terms of giving people yet another reason to stay at those resorts. And maybe as I think about this out loud, maybe even pay for a better room that had a view on Crescent Lake. So you can sit there from the balcony, you know, your own personal private balcony at your boardwalk or your beach club room and watch this Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber show take place right out in front of you. Yeah. And as far as, you know, why this didn't happen. I've, you know, I've seen some different quotes and things like there was, you know, some information in the Orlando Sentinel from back then that they couldn't, they hit a point where they couldn't decide on the theme of the show. But from what I understand, Andrew Lloyd Webber had at least part of this scored. So this music is out there somewhere. Um, Here's the extent to which I do my research. I attempted to email Andrew Lloyd's Weber, Andrew Lloyd Webber's people. Um, uh, clearly, I am not important enough to <laughs> to to answer, which I'm not surprised by. Um, or maybe, perhaps, all of this is under some sort of Disney NDA. You know, he, maybe they're not allowed to talk about it. But yeah, th- apparently, there is music out there somewhere. That, that was completed for this, maybe not the entirely sh- the entire show, but at least part of it. I, I think it's more that I think it's more NDA than than that 
they just don't want to respond. Um, I, I listen. It would be fascinating to be able to hear what that music um, ended up sounding like. And you know, the Noah's Ark idea has come up over and over again. We, if you think back, and I think we we've, we've talked in the past about Genesis Gardens for Disney's Animal Kingdom. Joe Rohde wanted to have this giant Noah's Ark as sort of your entrance portal into the first land, which was going to be known as Genesis Gardens. And it would have a lot of different animal story, uh, animal displays and stories that would help carry the story of Disney's Animal Kingdom along. Um, again, interesting in terms of the biblical tie-ins um, and, and having to probably having some difficulty navigating that like you get the conservation like noah was the first conservation guy like he literally tried <laughs> to conserve every single species so it makes sense but you might have a difficult time in terms of navigating any of the religious implications um there and from what i understand now there actually is it's a non-disney thing but there is a noah's ark encounter theme park in kentucky that opened in like 2018, it's like this $100 million reconstruction of the arc, probably without music by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah, I don't think that's a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> so just think, we could be singing and humming along and putting on our Spotify playlist, you know, the arc, the, the arc song from, uh, from Disney MGM Studios, if things were different. But that's not the only thing that we can't believe almost came to specifically the Disney MGM studios. And if you've noticed Kendall Foreman, that we have not really talked about food or themed restaurants at all, leave it to one of, if not for some, the greatest magician who ever lived to try and change all that in the summer of 1998 with Copperfield's magic underground. Insert very magical music here. Yeah, I remember that. I, I remember the billboard for this vividly. I, you know, it used to sit uh, at the entrance to MGM Studios. It was a typically typical sized billboard, and half of it was for David Copper, Copperfield's Magic Underground, and half of it was for Fantasmic. And obviously, we got half the billboard, and the other half we did not. <laughs> um, this was not only just planned for. MGM Studios. There was supposed to be another location in Times Square, New York as well. And I think you can look to that location as to why this did not ultimately happen. Um, but this was supposed to be a, a restaurant themed on David Copperfield and his magic, very big at the time. Um, and he was known for doing huge illusions. Uh, one of them was, you know, he made the, the Statue of Liberty disappear. And in this restaurant, he wanted there to be illusions from all vantage points. So while you're eating in there, there would, you know, it would, you know, things would appear or disappear or, you know, other types of magical things would occur, not with a magician, but from what I understand, just, you know, an interactive aspect of the restaurant. And he was very particular on how he wanted that to look, which, I feel like you can understand. I mean, you're you're a magician, and if it looks like 
it's not legitimately happening, then people are going to question you and, and your show in addition to what's going on there at the restaurant. So, but because of this, there was a lot of cost involved with that. And so they started building the one in Times Square and the co- it was just so cost prohibitive that the location sat half finished for quite some time. And the one that would have sat near the entrance to MGM Studios was never started. Yeah, I think people don't realize that the one in New York was very close to completion. You know, the the interiors were already being built. And I, I certainly understand from Copperfield, you know, the, the, we're gonna, without getting too deep into the financial difficulties and, and um, ups and downs that, that took place from his point of view, it obviously has to meet his standards to what the illusions are because his name is on it. And when you try and put those illusions into this relatively uncontrolled environment. Yes, there would have been magicians on stage doing close-up magic and and stage illusion, but trying to have these illusions taking place all the time and it is who you are, it is what you do. I can understand some of his reticence in terms of approving some of those things that, um, that needed to or he wanted to be in there. But it sounds like as the money started to dry up in New York, things just started to fall. You know, the, 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 the wheels just sort of fell off everything very, very quickly. And the the billboard started to come down and, and Disney distanced themselves from it. And yeah, I know that there was discussion about possibly replacing David Copperfield with Lance Burton because there was there was a lot more going on than just money um, in terms of being the reasons why this didn't happen and and issues with uh, investments and investors. But, um, you know, Walt Disney World was not going to be the only location that they intended to have a Magic Underground. They planned to replicate this in California and Paris and Tokyo if this location was successful, which, again, Kendall, on paper, Considering how popular he was, and look, think back to the times too. In 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 the the eighties and nineties, themed restaurants like Hard Rock Cafes and Planet Hollywoods and all those were all star cafes, right? They were super super popular. Um, that those are the things that were very much attracting people to come in. You weren't going in necessarily because of the cuisine, but you were going in because of the theming and the story and the show aspect. So it made perfect sense to have something like that, something so unique in a place like Walt Disney World. Yeah, it seemed like, you know, something that would have been popular, like you say, you know, everybody wanted to go to Hard Rock Cafe or I remember the um, the American Bandstand restaurant and, and, you know, obviously things like Rainforest Cafe are a product of that time as well. Yeah, and these restaurants were going to be huge. Like the one in New York was going to be 30,000 square feet. And that would have accommodated about 450 diners. It'd be a 2000 square foot retail location with obviously, you know, Copperfield merch, um, probably magic tricks you could take home too. As somebody who loved house of magic as a kid, I I dig that idea. Um, There was also going to be a retail store in downtown Disney, uh, which is where, 
if you remember where the Harley Davidson store used to be near the AMC theater, uh, there was actually a sign in the window at one point that said that Copperfield's magical underground was going to be coming soon um, in that location. So there was, this was one that again, seemed to very much be a fait accompli in terms of actually coming to pass and, and, you know, construction ready to get started. But you wonder, save for the issues that happen on a, a financial side from the New York location, would this one, if it, if this was the only location, this is where the time and money and investment went, would that, if this was the first Copperfields Magical Underground, would that location have succeeded? Would it still even be there? Yeah, it does make you wonder, yeah, if they had started at Disney World first, because it seems like, you know, whatever illusions it was that they were attempting to do, had that been something that they had been doing in partnership with Disney Imagineering, maybe it maybe it would have gone differently. You know, because the one in New York, uh, according to, to newspaper reports, was 85% complete, and they invested $34 million dollars into that location. Like that's a lot of money to walk away from without having any other than, other than some concept art and a logo, you're really walking away with nothing. Yeah. It is very interesting. If you look up the New York location, you know, to see the exterior of it and how much was done and it seems like, you know, from an economic standpoint, you've got so much sunk cost there. Why not, <laughs> why not finish it out and see what happens? Yeah, or even just take some of those resources from New York and and ship them down to Florida, and um, you know, having Disney in your corner and having such a, a captive audience there as well too. You wonder if that would have succeeded had it not been for some of those other issues. But I think a magic themed restaurant, and we see there's a few locations. Um, even here in Orlando that have come and gone that have had magic as the theme where they've had close-up magicians walking around. So I think there always seems to be a little bit of an interest in that. Um, I don't know if a, if a, I don't know if a David Blaine magic underground would necessarily be sustainable over time. And maybe that could have been the issue as well. Yeah. I've never been to the Abracadabra. Ab- Abracadabra bar. It's because you can't right pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, but, um, I, from what I understand, there was supposed to be at least some mild, you know, kind of illusions like the, you know, the dropping bar stools or something. Did that, did that happen? Have you been to the Abracadabra? I have, and it's a small location. It is not, it is not cavernous to, uh, to say the least. Um, I haven't been there in a long time and obviously, you know, with COVID things, um, things made it impossible to get there, but it's, there are small illusions that take place and it really is more of theming than it is actual execution of having, you know, magicians and illusions going on. So we have a little bit of magic, but certainly not on the scale of what Copperfields was supposed to be. Well, the last um, thing that I have from the Disney decade, uh, I'm not sure what all you have left on your list, but the last one I've got is something that has been, it is the perennial rumor. Um, but during the late 80s, it actually went so far as the several, you know, articles from the Orlando Sentinel being written and um, that they were they were hoping to expand the monorail at that point in time, that um, there would have been uh, three and a half miles that were going to run from Epcot Center to uh, what was 
at that time, you know, the, the Disney Village Marketplace and the Lake Buena Vista hotels that were there. And that, you know, for years we've heard about the idea of a monorail expansion. And we always, what you always hear is that it would have been so cost prohibitive, but they were looking at things at that time, you know, the idea of uh, pursuing some bonds, perhaps having, you know, a surcharge on some of the occupied rooms there in Lake Buena Vista and that this would have been possibly somewhat different from what the monorails are that ran on the regular line, that this line that would have extended from Epcot would have had a little bit larger monorails. Um, they even talked about possibly, you know, having some sort of transportation pass or, you know, other ways of deferring the cost of, of an expansion project. And from what I understand, there's actually a few footers that were poured um, that exist in different places in Epcot. But then uh, clearly that never came to pass. Yeah. And this is a rumor that continues to resurface every few years. Again, especially as you drive through or on a bus through Walt Disney World property, and if you're passing down the monorail line, and anybody, anytime you see a construction vehicle or a construction crew, you think this is where the uh, the expansion to Disney's Animal Kingdom is going to happen. I don't know that it ever will for a variety of reasons. Cost is least of which is is certainly one of the the major concerns. And now seeing other forms of entertainment transportation, as I like to think of it, like the Skyway, you wonder if a monorail expansion will ever take place. Along those same lines, although in a in a different scale and scope, is not necessarily transportation within the Walt Disney World Resort, but transportation to and from the Walt Disney World Resort. And in the late 80s, there was a lot of discussion and, and real conversation beyond rumor of a maglev train, which sounds like something you would see in, you know, some futuristic movie but a magnetic levitation train much like even more so than the bullet trains uh this is where it's a train that has no wheels and it floats on magnetic energy at speeds of more than 300 miles an hour which is about twice the speed of a japanese bullet train to be clear, maglev and what the TTA are are two very different things. TTA is not maglev. TTA is still wheels on a track, but it's the the vehicles don't have any motors. They just have magnets, and embedded in the track are electromagnets, which power up as the car gets close, pulls on the magnets in the car, and then shut off so the, the vehicle rides over it. Um, Again, the one we have here in Disney World, different than Disneyland, which was tires in the track, and the, the tires would actually push the car forward. Um, did you know, wait, quick trivia question. Did you know that Disney originally wanted Ford, who built the Magic Skyway, to sponsor the People Mover, and Ford refused because they were their feeling at the time was that the People Mover, if this technology was leveraged and utilized sort of outside a theme park environment to a transportation environment would potentially obviate the need for cars and that people mover trains would replace cars. And they're like, 
we sell cars. We're not going to sponsor something that might replace them. So that's why Disney went to Goodyear, who manufactures tires, and they are the ones who agreed to do it because obviously it still needs tires as well. So anyway, the maglev trains, I sorry, I go off on little nerdy tangents. The maglev trains was supposed to bring vehicles from the Orlando International Airport to Walt Disney World, specifically Epcot Center in 7 minutes. And it was going to be at 10-12 uh, to get from point A to point B. It sounds great, right? Why would this not happen? I'm saying this half-jokingly, but blame Universal. Because it's true, because Harcourt Blaze Jovanovic, um, who um, had owned SeaWorld as well as Universal and some of the other parks and restaurants and other tourist businesses, said, wait a minute. All this is doing is getting people who want to come to Orlando only to Walt Disney World. Like they called it an e-ticket attraction for Disney, like Universal, like this, what you are building is an e-ticket ride for Walt Disney World. And that's all people are going to do is go from the airport to Disney. Um, and actually, Charlie Ridgway, who Disney legend, a friend of mine, uh, one of my very first interviews, by the way, um, said when there was this um outpouring of backlash saying, look, this is not cool. What this train needs to do is stop at every single one of the major theme parks in the Orlando area. We This is fine as long as it stops at Universal, SeaWorld, and every other little, you know, Ripley's, believe it or not, wherever. And Ridgeway is like, wait a minute. Like, it doesn't make sense to stop a train going at 350 miles an hour every <laughs> three miles to go to the next um, the next different attraction. So there was a lot of back and forth. There was a major sort of political storm and uprising about this. It brought up a lot of other issues. You know, Disney is, is exempt from paying road impact fees. And so all these things, all these things that were given to Disney when they first came here in the 60s by the Florida legislature because of what Disney represented and what it was and continues to bring to the area all started to to come up again and this this idea um unfortunately had had died in after a number of years and there's there's been other plans about there were plans in terms of trying to to have a uh, a people mover type system in Orlando um and Disney did not want to support a system using the people mover technology that would not only go to Disney world, but would go to some of these other uh, places as well. And, you know, you can't use for, if you're thinking, well, we could just use the maglev technology on the monorails. You can't again, because it's inefficient because again, the, the stations are too close together. Um, the trains would be too close together. And from a, a financial perspective, the cost would just be way too prohibitive to do something like this on an internal Walt Disney World transportation scale. Yeah. And from what I understand at the time they had, I mean, it was far enough along that they, they had two different companies that were, you know, hoping to try to partner with Walt Disney World, the Japanese National Railways. And then I believe there was a French company as well that was wanting to try to get high-speed rail brought there. And it's interesting, you know, all these years later, you know, 30 plus years later now that we're going to end up with the, the bright line rail line. And I have, do you, so do you have anything else on your list? 
That that completes my list. So I have my ace in the hole. I have my one <laughs> thing that I found, which I saved for last because I think it is one of the most interesting and intriguing and possibly far-reaching in terms of the different areas of not just the parks, but other aspects of the company that it touches. And one of the things that we did get as part of the Disney decade and this expansion was in 1989, the opening of Typhoon Lagoon. And there is this very detailed backstory that goes along with Typhoon Lagoon because with everything Disney does, it is rooted in story. But if you look very carefully and you really sort of dig down deep into it, I know we've talked about the, the, the story on past shows, the backstory for this water park is very detailed and it's very intricate. And it's because unlike movies that are the the properties on which attractions are based, Typhoon Lagoon was going to be the basis of other things as well, including Typhoon Lagoon, the movie. (laughs) So the idea, don't laugh, it's real. The idea was that uh, Gary Wolf, who wrote the book, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which inspired the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit, was writing a screenplay for a film called Typhoon Lagoon. And it was going to be based on the storyline in which Typhoon Lagoon was created. And actually, Typhoon Lagoon was designed and built so that it could have been used as a filming location for a movie of the same name. So they wanted to use this not just as a water park, but the story as the basis for this movie as well as it being shot on location. So you're going to either go to the theme, go to go to the water park and have to go see the movie, or you're going to watch this epic movie written by the guy who wrote Roger Rabbit. And well, clearly now I need to go to this park and sort of be immersed literally in the movie set itself. But wait, Kendall Foreman and my friend listening, there's more. More? Yes. Because it was actually going to spark inspiration for not just this water park, but another water park, which was Blizzard Beach. And the idea was not to sort of make this be a movie set, but they really wanted the theme parks to be destinations and attractors in and of themselves. So Blizzard Beach was originally going to be connected to a Disney Alpine resort. There was another resort that was going to be guilt. And the way the story goes that Imagineer Eric Jacobson had all of these different snow globes that he loved and collected in his office. And they are the things that inspired this idea of a water park with a winter theme. But where Coronado Springs sits now, they were going to build this huge towering moderate resort called Disney's Alpine Resort, which would have had not just a perk of being located next to Blizzard Beach, but you could have actually ridden a chairlift from the resort directly into Blizzard Beach. Wow. And part of the reason why it wasn't built was because, and this is according to Kathy Mangum, 
that because the water parks, for a variety of reasons, they go down a couple of times a year, either for rehab or for weather, which means that there's maintenance crews that go in there. They have to drain all the water out. And what they didn't want were guests who were staying at this resort not only to not have access to the water park, which was the big attractor, but to look out over their window and see, you know, construction crews and trucks and guys in hard hats roaming around doing maintenance on the thing which was supposed to be the big attractor to the resort itself. Yeah, I had not heard about the Typhoon Lagoon movie, but as you were talking about the Blizzard Beach Resort, I do remember having seen just little snippets about that. But how cool would it have been to have an Alpine themed resort um, in Walt Disney World. And it, and it gets me thinking about, you know, do they start, again, no good idea ever dying. Are they dusting off plans and ideas for what Mineral King was supposed to be? Do they integrate those into potentially, um, it, 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 the ideas for that real ski resort into this themed ski resort inside Walt Disney World? Right. And even thinking along the lines of the way that they've incorporated like some of Walt's vacations to the Riviera in the Riviera Resort, you could have done something very similar, like with Walt's history with Sugar Bowl yeah. Ski Lodge. And that, I mean, that could have had a very interest. I mean, I, I'd have to imagine being attached to Blizzard Beach, they probably would have gone the more whimsical route, but you definitely could have had a history that you could have dug into there with that. Yeah, and I think so. And so this is leads me to the question for you and for you who's listening. There have been so many and such a, a huge spectrum of things that all the things that that could have been right for. And this is only during this decade, right? And, and look, we, and we've obviously talked about lost ideas many times before, both on the show. On the blog again, I'm going to list. Uh, I'm going to link to a lot of those on the show notes. So if you go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, I'll link to you know some of the worlds that never were: Genesis Gardens, Equatorial Africa, Thunder Mesa, Crime Stoppers, Soviet Russia, the Lost Resorts of the Magic Kingdom, the World Showcase that never was, the Muppets, the Disney Decade, Beastly Kingdom, Roger Rabbit, Hollywood Land, so much more. And Kendall, I think we also one day. We should put a pin in the idea of doing a Disneyland that never was because there's some pretty cool stuff that never came to Disneyland. Harry Anderson from Night Court, I'm looking at you on my TV screen. And (laughs) a lot of other Walt Disney World unrealized concepts. For example, I'm going to tease, like the Walt Disney World water park based on a very successful movie franchise, a new space, that's a dramatic pause, a new spaceport for a different park and a few others. But I want to know first from you, Kendall, and from you, my friend who is listening, of all the things that we covered on the show from the Disney decade, which of these concepts, if you could only pick one, do you wish could have come to pass most? And Kendall, while you're thinking, I do want to hear from you, the listener. I'll post this question in the clubhouse. That is our group on Facebook at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. Or you can call the voicemail. I'll be heard on the air. I'll play your voicemail on the air at 407-900-9391. And now, Kendall, I've given you time to stall slash think slash look back at your notes. What is the one thing 
from the Disney decade you wish could have come to pass most and why? This is, I didn't need the, the pause. Um, it's an easy answer for me. It's, it's the Mediterranean Grecian restaurant restaurant. Clearly I have the food on the brain, the resort, I, primarily because I would have liked to have a Grecian restaurant. It was interesting on on your recent show. One of the listeners mentioned that about where can you get Greek food in Disney World, and it is kind of fascinating that there is nowhere to get Greek food. Um, but yeah, I, I've always wanted, I've always dreamed of seeing the Greek Isles. I would love to to visit the Mediterranean Resort. You know, have have my my Greek food outside along their water features, and I I think that would have been a spectacular resort. And who's to say that those ideas are not still swirling around on a drawing board or a model somewhere at uh, on Flower Street for, in the Halls of Imagineering? For me, when you said resort, it, it, it jumped to top of mind. Those original ideas of, and this is just me as a fan of of the genre and, and the fan of the man, the idea of this Hollywood horror hotel, which we'll probably never see for a variety of reasons, uh, the Hotel Mel, any sort of iteration of those. Um, I love the horror genre. I love the idea of that 1930s time period and this concept of the immersive environment not just you walk in and out of an attraction and and the experience ends you walk in and out of galaxy's edge the experience ends now we're going to see that with the star wars themed hotel i would hope and i would believe that that's going to start i think that the the halcyon is going to set the precedent for these type of immersive 24 7 living worlds that we are checking in and out of as as our experience it's we're our experience is punctuated by checking in and checking out not walking in and out of of a theme park or a specific attraction and the idea of having that in in a themed resort is incredibly fascinating to me um i i think some of the concepts for the space pavilion were very very intriguing as well as even from an ip perspective we have some muppets more Muppets and some of the uh, the Roger Rabbit stuff as well. And let's see the arc, man. I, I want get it, Andrew Lloyd Webber in here. Let him do his <laughs> thing, and let's let's see what that Noah's Ark water show was going to look like. Yeah, I have to. I'm with you on the Muppets. That was that would be my second choice behind the Mediterranean Resort. Well, again, I want to know from you, and I know Kendall does as well. We want to hear your thoughts on what you think. Uh, you would like to have seen come from the unrealized attractions and concepts from the Disney decade. Again, come to the clubhouse, leave your answer there, or call the voicemail, 407-900-9391. And, oh, by the way, be sure and check out the WW Radio blog. Kendall has, for, God, years now, I don't even know how long, been sharing her time and her talents and her insight on the blog with some incredibly creative ideas there as well. Yeah, yeah, it's been eight years. Wow. And yeah, and then coming up, I, I'd encourage everyone to check out and hear 
next week, I believe. Have to check the editorial calendar. Um, I'm going to start a series. I wanted to take a little bit different turn as far as the 50th anniversary is concerned. So I'm going to be looking at decade by decade, the influencer of the decade. So what what edition or what concept from each decade of Walt Disney World has had the most lasting impact on their resort as a whole. So the 1970s of that will drop here pretty soon. Oh, I love it. And I'll put a link in the show notes to all of Kendall's articles where you can just search for her uh, by her name, Kendall Foreman. Uh, Anything else that you want to plug? Any social that you want people to find you or follow you on or just at the blog? I I lay pretty low on the social media. So yeah, definitely check out the blog and sometimes you can find me um, just commenting, posting in the in the clubhouse. I, I just just asked yesterday what everyone's favorite cup of coffee is. So I like to interact there with everybody. <laughs> nice. And we have a lot more to cover from some uh, interesting Disney history perspectives as a few other ideas we have been tossing around as well. And if you have an idea that you'd like us to cover, Kendall and I, uh, be sure to send it to me, Lou at www.radio.com or post it in the comments in the clubhouse. And uh, thank you again so much, Kendall. This is a lot of fun. And um, if only if only we could have celebrated the uh, together at Copperfield's Magic Underground. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you for having me again. It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details in which you see, hear, or remember from the parks. If you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. This week's trivia contest is sponsored by our friends over at Sideshow Collectibles, where you can let your Disney sideshow with limited edition collectible figures, statues, art, jewelry, apparel, and so much more. I have a few Sideshow items. I've gifted Sideshow items. They have everything from Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, even TV shows and movies like Battlestar Galactica, which is a personal favorite of mine, as well as incredible gallery of fine art prints. You can check out their Disney collection and everything else by going to www.radio.com Sideshow. And if you want to save $15 off your first order, just sign up for their free newsletter when you go to www.radio.com Sideshow. Now, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back to review last week's and select our winner. So as long as we are still talking about unrealized attractions and I thought there wasn't enough Muppets or food, I wanted you to tell me what was the original name of the unrealized Muppet-themed restaurant in Walt Disney World. First, thanks, congratulations to the hundreds of you who entered, got this one correct, and knew that it was Gonzo's Pandemonium Pizza Parlor. And I know what you're saying, we already have Pizza Rizzo, but this was going to be something very different, much more interactive and themed, because the idea here was that the restaurant was going to be run by Gonzo and Rizzo, but unlike this just being a counter-service pizzeria, they were going to have animatronic Muppet rats, seriously, deliver pizza to your table by train. I kid you not. There also would have been this animatronic Gonzo that you would have seen and heard crawling through the ductwork in the ceiling. There would have been video screens all around with clips from classic Muppet TV shows and movies, 
as well as the obvious pandemonium that you would see and hear in the kitchen with Gonzo and Rizzo and the Swedish chef. You might hear an explosion here or there. The doors from the kitchen would have opened up. There'd be clouds of smoke, chicken feathers everywhere. And just like Muppet Vision 3D in the holding in the queue area, the entire restaurant walls and, and atmosphere would have been covered with props and posters and all kinds of sight gags. And the location for this is not where Pizza Rizzo is now, but actually where Mama Melrose's Ristorante Italiano is. But of course, as we've been saying for the past two weeks, no good idea ever dies. We didn't get the Pandemonium Pizza Parlor, but we did get Pizza Rizzo in 2016. Anyway, I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and last week you were playing for a brand new WW Radio pin and keychain, which you can only get by winning the trivia contest. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Mandy Wells from Dothan, Alabama. So Mandy, congratulations. I have your address. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So I was thinking all about the international Disney parks this week and how much I miss places like Tokyo Disneyland, oh, Tokyo Disney Sea, how I miss you, and Hong Kong and Shanghai and Paris, I'm going to get to you soon. And it made me think about this week's question, which is, is, tell me simply, what is the only attraction, there's only one, that can be found at every single Disney park around the world. What attraction can you only find at all six parks around the world? You have until Sunday, May 16th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast. There you'll find the online form. Once again, this weekend, a play for the WW Radio pin and keychain. And who knows, maybe a little surprise as well. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you for taking the time to tune in this and every week. Please come be part of the community and conversation by joining our Facebook group at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. You can also connect with me directly on social. I am at Lou Mangiello on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Also, be sure to like the WW Radio page on Facebook at facebook.com slash WW Radio and turn on notifications so you don't miss a thing, including our Wednesday night WW Radio live show, our weekly live video broadcast and chat either from the home studio or from out in the parks. Come by and talk about this week's show, anything going on in the Disney, Marvel, or Star Wars universes. I'll share my top five live Disney Plus pick of the week contest, your questions, and anything you want to chat about. Again, every Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.radiolive.com. Speaking of community, I want to thank some of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation family. I appreciate your love, support, friendship, and help, and I love being able to give back to you each and every month with a monthly scavenger hunts, our monthly Zoom calls, private Facebook group, special logo gear, and monthly mystery care packages from Walt Disney World. I want to thank some new and longtime members, including Josh Anderson, Ray Keating, Marla Chan, Karen Lusenskis, and Weslin Banks. If you want to find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar a month, get these exclusive rewards. Remember that a portion of your contribution does go to our Dream Team project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Thanks to you, we've raised more than $450,000 
please go to www.radionation.com. Simply by being here, by being part of the community, the nation, and listening to the show, you do so much for me. And if there's some way that I can help you, either with one-on-one mentoring, being part of our weekly entrepreneurial mastermind group, or if I can come speak to your business, your conference, or your school, visit lumangelo.com. Thanks, as always, to Mouse Fan Travel, my official and recommended travel provider. Whether you're going to any Disney destination or anywhere in the world, you can go and visit mousefantravel.com for a free, no-obligation quote. More importantly, it comes at no cost to you and with an exceptional level of personal service. Again, visit them at mousefantravel.com. And finally, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Tell a friend, tweet out that you're listening, share a link to this or one of your favorite past episodes on your Facebook profile, in your Facebook group, or on your Pinterest or Instagram. Most importantly, it would be so helpful if you could take just a couple of seconds to rate and review the show over on Apple Podcasts. It is very, very helpful, very appreciated. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Taylor Fry, who says, I'm a longtime listener, first-time reviewer. I've loved the show for years. It's such a great way to stay connected to what's new at Disney. Lou's an amazing host. He's warm and enthusiastic, and he can't help but be happier listening to the podcast. Taylor, that's exactly my intent every single week. Pure Disney magic you can take anywhere, says Vig Glenn, who says Lou and his guests do a wonderful job at creating a fully immersive Disney experience. I eagerly await each new episode and often listen to episodes from his wonderful back library. Lou's active in the Disney community, genuinely cares about its members. Very true. WW Radio is quite simply the bibbity-bobbity best thing not on the backside of water. Hashtag choose the good. Glenn Taylor, thank you so very much. Again, just search for WW Radio and Apple Podcasts or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes. Finally, most importantly, they're right. I hope that this show does bring a little bit of happiness, distraction, joy, positivity to you and your day and your week. And if there's some way that I can repay your kindness, your generosity, and your friendship, please let me know. Most importantly, always remember to choose the good, to find the good in everything that you do, every one that you encounter, and more importantly, be the good and spread that positivity to others. I promise you the ripple effect is contagious and will make you and the people around you feel and be better. Thank you again so very much. I love you. I appreciate you. So until next time, see ya. Hi, Lou. It's Christy from Anchorage, Alaska. I am here in Florida. I'm sitting down, looking over the World Showcase in Epcot, enjoying this beautiful, sunny weather. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, the last time I was in the parks was March of 2020, right before the shutdown, the day of, uh, or the day before the parks shut for a few months. And it's so good to be back. I want to wish everybody a beautiful day, and uh, I hope that everybody gets to be back in the park soon. I know I am super excited to be. Thanks. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison from Flowertown, Pennsylvania. I haven't called in, I think, in a couple weeks or a week. I'm not sure. I have been following along and listening to everything and watching everything. I've just been really busy. Um but I wanted to call because I was talking to my son today, kind of, I watched a video about everything that's, how everything's progressing and the new opening dates for everything. And it got me thinking that the ultimate is going to be when we are back to normal, post-pandemic, every, all the new stuff's open, all the restaurants are open, 
fast passes are back. Like, everything's back to normal. I cannot wait. How amazing is it going to be with all those new attractions, new restaurants, and you can just come and go at your leisure like we used to. I am super, super excited about that. I will be going back in July. Uh, we're going to catch food and wine festival. And then I think I might not be back until, well, my kidding. I'd go every month if I could. But I'll probably go next year at some point. But um, like 2024, I think, is going to be just like the ultimate year for everything. I cannot wait. Take care. Bye. Sorry, Lou. It's Christine calling you back. My timer was going off, and um, I had to hang up the phone. Anyway, make somebody smile, everybody. I'm looking forward to Wednesday night in the box. So happy that Disneyland is open. Oh, it's just, like, amazing. I've been watching videos where everybody's posting, and I'm so excited for everybody out there. can't wait. Maybe next year I'll get to go. Anyway, have a great week, everyone. It's Monday afternoon at 4 o'clock. Take care. Bye.